Frauders and Sorors, dear friends, the name Leonardo da Vinci is certainly on everyone's mind today, with a best-selling novel and a movie invoking his name, and hosts of specials on the cable channels giving us details of his life, art, and inventions. Unlike many other such figures, however, Leonardo has never really faded from view. For 500 years, he has stood as a beacon of humanism and enlightenment across the ages. Even though there may be an avalanche of interest at the moment, Leonardo da Vinci has always been a household word. Since this is true, today we will pool our knowledge of this great mystic to see what he has to say to us across the centuries. Leonardo typified the art, science, and spiritual yearnings of the Italian Renaissance. During this vibrant transitional period, medieval Western Europe was reawakening to the knowledge and wisdom of the ancient world. Leonardo's work in all areas of his life typifies this period, a vital connection that links the modern world with ancient civilizations and cultures through this Renaissance in Italy and elsewhere in Western Europe. Leonardo spent his life investigating the orderly laws that govern the universe and humanity. We can follow his path through the beauty and wisdom he has left for us across the centuries to seek these same truths, discovering the design of nature, revealing nature's ultimate source. Rosicrucians are very much aware that knowledge and wisdom have been transmitted in many ways from earliest human history to the present. There are several major ways in which this transmission takes place. These would include the exoteric community of learning, schools, published works, and so forth. Secondly, the esoteric transmission of learning, the mystery schools, monasteries, esoteric traditions such as hermetism and alchemy, and inner, direct, and inspired learning from the Akashic records, not from mundane sources. This is the inner gnosis, and it is experienced independently by mystics all over the world in every time and culture. The primordial tradition to which the Rosicrucian order is heir most certainly uses all of these ways of transmitting both knowledge and wisdom. We are very familiar with the fact that 1,500 years before Leonardo was born, the Mediterranean world experienced a time of prosperity and technological innovation, with Alexandria in Egypt as one of its most important centers of learning. The ancient Mediterranean civilization of this period achieved a philosophical, spiritual, and technical level that would not soon be equaled. The trail of knowledge and wisdom from the ancient world to Leonardo's time takes many turns. Between the classical world and Leonardo's day, ancient knowledge and wisdom were preserved and transmitted in several ways. On the exoteric or outer plane, some of the paths of this transmission would include monks in the Christian monasteries of Western Europe who copied out ancient manuscripts by hand, preserving knowledge for future generations. Gradually, this knowledge was studied, understood, and put into practice. Secondly, 
the Roman Empire in Constantinople and the East continued its high level of civilization, and there continued to be contacts between the Byzantine East and Western Europe, especially in Italy. During the 15th century, especially after the fall of the Roman Empire in 1453, its scholars and philosophers emigrated from Constantinople into Italy and the West, bringing their learning and their wisdom with them, and this was embraced by the humanists of the Renaissance. And thirdly, the Muslim world, stretching from the borders of China to Spain and Portugal, carefully preserved and studied the wisdom and knowledge of the ancient Mediterranean and became the most advanced civilization in the Western world during this period. Western Europeans came into contact with the Islamic and Jewish learning on the Iberian Peninsula, and they began to assimilate this knowledge. Now, on the esoteric level, some of the paths through which knowledge and wisdom flowed would include the following. Jewish Kabbalistic mysticism continued to develop and grow both in Europe and in the Middle East and became increasingly important in Western thought. Small groups of scholars and mystics often worked outside of official structures to transmit knowledge from ancient sources, in particular through alchemy, astrology, and other hermetic sciences. The contacts between the Templars and similar Muslim orders facilitated some of this transmission, even during the tragic events of the Crusades. And the writings attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, that is, the Corpus Hermeticum, took a very long journey. Popular in the first several centuries of our era, they gradually faded from general public knowledge, but were adopted by the old religionists of Haran in what is modern-day Turkey in the ninth century of our era. From there, the Corpus Hermeticum was transmitted once again to Constantinople, where it was recollected by Michael Psellus, the 11th century Byzantine scholar. From Constantinople, it made its way to Florence, where Marsilio di Ficino translated the collection into Latin in 1471, making this esoteric learning once again available to the West. The journey of the Gnostic Christian tradition is no less fascinating. From the ancient Mediterranean, it moved to Anatolia in Turkey from the 7th to the 9th centuries under the name of the Polisians. From there, it moved to Bulgaria under the name of the Bogomils and to Bosnia-Herzegovina during the 10th through 14th centuries. From Eastern Europe, it then moved across northern and central Italy and to southern France and Spain. We know these Gnostic Christians today as the Cathars or Albigensians who flourished from the 12th through the 14th centuries of our era. And finally, on the inner level, from what we might call the Akashic Record or direct inspiration, we can find many examples from history of inner direct transmission, including the mystics Meister Eckhart, Isaac Luria, Ibn Arabi, Rumi, Juliana of Norwich, Gregory Palamas, Simeon the New Theologian, 
Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Ignatius Loyola, Jacob Burma, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, and so very many others who received direct inspiration from the cosmic. Leonardo most certainly grew up at a time when all of these three means of transmission, the outer, the esoteric, and the inner, these three means of transmission of knowledge and wisdom were flourishing in Florence and throughout Italy. Early on, Leonardo's keen interest, intellect, and sensitivity for all the beauty and life around him were remarkable. For at least part of his life, he was a vegetarian and perhaps even a vegan. He speculated at one point that taking milk from cows was theft. This was only one way in which Leonardo inherited the spirit of ancient mystery schools. His first biographer, Vasari, reports that he would purchase caged birds on the streets of Florence only to set them free. It would be the first work of many in Leonardo's life, striving to set life free from artificial constraints so that all beings could participate in their own divine natural order. We can see many of the characteristics of the ancient mystery schools in Leonardo. For example, like the Pythagoreans, Leonardo saw in mathematics the way the universe is ordered. God geometrizes, both Leonardo and the Pythagoreans would say. Both also saw the divine order in proportion and ratio and practiced vegetarianism. As with the Hermetists, Leonardo understood the world according to the ancient maxim, as above, so below, that is, as a microcosm and a macrocosm. The adage, know thyself, and thou shalt know the universe and the gods, attributed to Thales, would be a fitting motto for the result of this understanding. And with the Neoplatonists, Leonardo would seek to climb the ladder of being, understanding higher things through the thorough observation of realities here below. As an artist, inventor, engineer, and mystic, Leonardo always worked to see how the pattern of all being worked, both large and small, and how all of the parts of the greater system functioned harmoniously. Modern scholar Martin Kemp describes Leonardo's quest in this way. Leonardo had to embrace a wide range of natural sciences and mathematics as he searched for scientific rules governing both humanity and the universe. It was these rules which provided the basis for his imaginative reconstruction of nature in masterworks such as The Last Supper, The Mona Lisa, and St. John. These works reveal his increasingly complex vision of humanity in the context of nature. And toward the end of his life, Leonardo became fascinated with the mathematics underlying the design of nature, behind which lay the ultimate force of the prime mover. This quest has been true of all mystics from the beginning of time. As we have seen, Pythagoras and his school in the 6th century before our era said that God geometrizes, echoing the wisdom of even more ancient Egyptian and other sources. 
Leonardo found inspiration in the perennial concept that human beings and our workings are a microcosm of the whole creation. His most famous drawing, The Vitruvian Man, is perhaps his most eloquent expression of this hermetic adage, as above, so below, as below, so above. Furthermore, as we can recall from this drawing, the human figure is inscribed within a square and a circle. Rosicrucians are well aware that the square represents the mundane world, the below of the maxim, and the circle conventionally represents eternity, the above in the hermetic adage. I propose that for our first meditation, we envision Leonardo's Vitruvian Man and listen to words from Leonardo's notebooks concerning the human person as microcosm. After his words, we can meditate upon their significance. Now please sit comfortably, feet flat on the floor, hands unclasped downward in the lap. Now take three deep breaths, and then after this, begin breathing normally once again. Leonardo says, By the ancients, the human person was termed a lesser world, and certainly the use of this name is well bestowed, because in that we are composed of water, earth, air, and fire, our body is an analog for the world. Just as we have in ourselves bones, the supports and armature of our flesh, the world has the rocks. Just as we have in ourselves the lake of the blood, in which the lungs increase and decrease during breathing, so the body of the earth has its oceanic seas, which likewise increase and decrease every six hours with the breathing of the world. Just as in that lake of blood the veins originate, which make ramifications throughout the human body, in a similar way, the oceanic sea fills the body of the earth with infinite veins of water. We can now return from our meditation to this time and place. Leonardo's approach to science was based on observations rather than theory.
he attempted to observe the most minute details of whatever he was studying, and then recorded these details with the utmost accuracy. Although much of the material in Leonardo's notebooks and journals is keen observation of the natural world, the artist often goes beyond his own world and dreams of what might be. Inspired by the ancient science described by the works of Vitruvius and other classical writers circulating during the Italian Renaissance, he knew that human society had once been more advanced and that nothing theoretical stood in the way of even further growth and discovery. Leonardo's tireless spirit of investigation and invention has continued to inspire all of those who seek to learn natural laws in order to live in harmony with them and to achieve potentials yet undreamed. A spiritual man, Leonardo was certainly not a typical believer of the 15th or 16th centuries. As his first biographer Vasari put it in his 1515 edition of The Artist's Life, his cast of mind was so heretical that he did not adhere to any religion, thinking perhaps that it was better to be a philosopher than a Christian. Modern biographer Marco Rossi suggests that Leonardo adopted an empirical approach to every thought, opinion, and action, and accepted no truth unless verified or verifiable, whether related to natural phenomena, or human behavior, or social activities. He still pinned his faith in logical certainty, in the often repeated affirmation that mathematics and geometry were the true foundations of knowledge. We can see, then, that Leonardo followed a path of knowledge, what he could discover for himself, rather than belief in what someone else had told him. This is most evidently the Rosicrucian approach. Whether Leonardo came to be part of the Rosicrucian path through exoteric or esoteric means, or through inner inspiration, it is very clear that he is part of the tradition of the Rose Croix. And certainly Leonardo was by no means alone in his mysticism, or in holding views that challenged the mainstream patterns of thought. He was in good company among many of the scholars and mystics of his time and before. For example, the monk Joachim of Fiore had preached in the 12th century that the age of the spirit was coming, when women and men would no longer need the authorities of church and state to have direct access to God. We can imagine the response of the authorities to this idea. Yet Joachim's preaching set the tone for much Western mysticism throughout the ensuing centuries. Some of the other Western European mystics around Leonardo's time who challenged conventional ways of thinking, include Giordano Bruno, a hermitist, pantheist, and astronomer who was burned at the stake for his views in the year 1600. Or Marsilio Ficino, a 15th century Neoplatonist. And Pico della Mirandola, a 15th century Neoplatonist and humanist who argued that all religions and scriptures speak of the same eternal truths and of the same God. 
Following Leonardo's time, the tradition of inner spirituality continued, but it was often opposed by those in power. After the Rosicrucian Manifestos were published in the years 1614, 1615, and 1616, mystics associated with this movement, such as Francis Bacon, Robert Flood, Michael Meyer, and many others, carried on Leonardo's search for understanding and living according to the universal laws. Throughout the centuries, the primordial tradition celebrated by Leonardo has continued to inspire great works of science, art, and spirituality, and this continues to the present day. Perhaps the point that Leonardo would emphasize from all of this would be, think for yourself. All of his writings highlight the importance of discovering natural laws and truths for oneself rather than relying on what others, including authority figures, insist upon as true. From this, all of his genius in invention and beauty in art have flowed. People of his time said that humans could not fly, but Leonardo refused to accept that. And today, we know that he was right as we reach toward the stars. Wisdom is the daughter of experience, Leonardo once wrote. Typical of the Rosicrucian approach, it is not enough to stand in admiration of his genius and creativity. Women and men throughout history have been inspired by the same natural laws and principles to continue his work of discovery, beauty, and invention. In this process, he warns us to be true to our own genius and inspiration as well when he writes, Anyone who in discussion relies upon authority uses not the understanding, but memory. In accord with Leonardo's admonition to heed our inner voice, I propose that we conduct a final meditation allowing Leonardo to speak to us across the centuries as inspiration, but then going within for true communion. First, I will read two passages from his notebooks, and then we can meditate upon these words for a few minutes following the passage. I also recommend that once again we follow Leonardo's example and record our experiences and insights from this and all of our meditations in study notebooks or journals. Now please sit comfortably, feet flat on the floor, hands unclasped, and downward in the lap. Now take three deep breaths, and then resume breathing normally. Leonardo writes, if the human person's construction should appear to you to be a marvelous artifice, remember that it is nothing compared to the soul which inhabits such architecture. And truly, be it what it may, it is a divine thing. Love of anything is the offspring of knowledge. Love being more fervent in proportion as knowledge is more certain.
And this certainty springs from a thorough knowledge of all the parts that comprise the whole. Now let us return to this time and place. Fraters and Sorors, dear friends, Leonardo understood the ancient wisdom that the human person is a microcosm of the whole world. It follows that one can come to know whatever is needed by a careful study of creation and by inner meditation. In this way, we come to discover what Leonardo did, that we are truly capax universi, capable of all things. We can follow the path of discovery, invention, joy, and beauty that Leonardo blazed for us in our own lives today, working for the progress of humanity and our entire planet. This kind of testament is one that Leonardo would most surely appreciate. So mote it be.